Good morning, church. Thank you, Jeff, for reading that. Um, hey, I want to uh, welcome everyone, and, and specifically, I, I just want to say thank you if you're a visitor here with us today. Uh, thanks for uh, making the decision to come here and, and be amongst us. Um, I did want to draw your attention to, uh, we have uh, just a little connection table over here to the side. Uh, if you're a visitor, we have a bag over there that just has a little bit of information about who we are as a church. Could be helpful to you. Uh, Scott, just a small gift. We just want to thank you uh, for being here with us. Um, for whether you're a visitor or not, we also have resources on that table. So any resource we have on that table, including the books on that table, are free. Uh, the only cost is that you commit to actually reading them, and, and we feel like that information might be helpful. Uh, so make sure to check that out. The resources on the wall, uh, we, ask, you know, we, we ask folks to help reimburse that cost. There's a little info there, but the resources that are on the table are a free gift to you, and, and we uh, just thank you. Uh, for being a part uh, here with us today. This morning, uh, we are going to be um, starting a series in the book of Hebrews. Uh, we're going to spend the next eight months in the book of Hebrews, and uh, we are going to start today with just the first three verses. Uh, so before we dive in and look at those first three verses, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of set the tone and give you a little background information as we begin this journey uh, through this profound book. So before I do that, um, I'd like to just pray uh, for our time this morning. Father, thank you for the privilege of being a part of your church. Um, Lord, thank you for the privilege of being a son. Um, it's this book, uh, just reading this book, even in preparation for today, um, it's just humbling to consider uh, the weightiness of the privilege that being sons and daughters truly is. Lord, I ask um, that over the course of our study of the book of Hebrews, um, that you might help open our eyes to the supremacy of Christ above all things. Um, Lord, that's, would those, that not just be words for us, but would we truly value Jesus Christ above everything um, that all the rest of creation has to offer? And might you use your words, your power, to accomplish this in our hearts. I ask this this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we begin looking at the letter to the Hebrews, I'll start with addressing the audience that this is written to. We simply call this book Hebrews because this is the title that's found on most ancient manuscripts. Unlike the epistles, though, Hebrews starts differently. There is no welcome, there's no salutation directed to a specific group of people. There's no mention of any specific church. So making any assumptions about the specific audience takes a little bit more thorough of an examination. So when we look at Hebrews, you'll notice first that the tone of this letter certainly seems to indicate that it is written to Christians. The content of the letter also assumes that it's not just being written to Christians, but it's being written to knowledgeable Christians, one who have a good grasp on the Old Testament. There is a lot of Old Testament knowledge and reference in Hebrews that is just assumed by the writer that the people hearing this are familiar with these things. Additionally, additionally the author frequently quotes from the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So we can assume that this translation of Scripture was most familiar to those being written to. And these clues make it likely that the people being directly written to were converted Jews living amongst a Greek culture. So we call this Hellenistic Jews. But no matter who 
the letter was originally sent to and delivered to specifically, it is clear that it was intended for a broader audience in accordance with God's gracious will. What we know clearly about the intent of the book of Hebrews is that it is written directly to the church of Jesus Christ, both then and now. So then we transition to the question of who wrote this book. And this opens up quite a can for people who are interested in this sort of thing. The earliest written statement regarding the authorship of Hebrews comes from Clement of Alexandria. He believed that Paul wrote this book in Hebrew and that Luke translated it, translated it into Greek. You'll notice like when you read Hebrews and you study it against the epistles, you'll notice the language is somewhat differently. And Clement of Alexandria believed that this, for this reason, because Luke had translated it for him into Greek. And the idea that Paul wrote Hebrews is a fairly popular idea. And many who hold to this idea cite the end of Hebrews in 13 verses 18 through 19 and 23 and 24. They both indicate that whoever is writing Hebrews, the people receiving this letter are very familiar with this person. He acknowledges that they know him well. However, many, including myself, disagree with the idea that Paul wrote this letter for a variety of reasons. Frederick Farrar, who was a cleric and a teacher in the Anglican Church of England, and interestingly, he was also a pallbearer at Charles Darwin's funeral, but that's a story for a different day. He wrote a commentary on the book of Hebrews, and he cites this. The writer cites differently from Paul. He writes differently. He argues differently. He declaims differently. He constructs and connects his sentences differently. He builds up his paragraphs on a wholly different model. His style is the style of a man who thinks as well as writes in Greek, whereas Paul wrote in Greek, but he thought in Syriac, meaning the language of ancient Syria. F.F. F. Bruce, in his Hebrews commentary, quoted John Calvin when he wrote, The manner of teaching and the style sufficiently show that Paul was not the author, and the writer himself confesses in the second chapter, Hebrews 2, verse 3, that he was one of the disciples of the apostles, which is totally different from the way in which Paul spoke of himself. Paul never addressed himself that way. The early commentator Tertullian, who wrote in the early 200s, he firmly believed that Barnabas wrote Hebrews, but he offered very little support for this statement other than leaning on Barnabas's reputation as a man of encouragement in the book of Acts. Martin Luther believed that Apollos wrote the book of Hebrews because Acts tells us that he was eloquent, eloquent and had a strong command of the Old Testament. There are a lot of theories. Some believe Priscilla wrote the book of Acts and that because of how it would have been received in that day, it was kept anonymous. The fact is, what is clear is that we just don't know who wrote this book and it's unique in that way. And since this word was composed of and gifted by God, we can trust fully that the lack of clear authorship in this situation is intentional. The word is ultimately provided by the Holy Spirit, and it seems that for whatever reason, we're not meant to know who wrote the book of Hebrews. Perhaps we would have received it differently if we did. I do not know God's purpose in that, but the truth is, we just don't know. But what we do know about the book of Hebrews is that it is a weighty, book. It is a book that many do not dwell too far into, and many feel over their head as they go into it. This book provided to the church by God 
is intended to aid the church in seeing the supremacy of Christ above all else. This book is weighty and rich. I will confess, it was probably four or five months ago when we made the decision that we were going to transition into Hebrews this year. And originally, I, I hadn't spent a ton of time in Hebrews, probably since seminary, and I thought, it's 13 chapters, might not be that long of a sermon series. Maybe 13 chapters might just be a few months. Well, today's sermon is on the first three verses of Hebrews. I quickly found that this short book is in no way a small book. It is a weighty book. Every chapter of this book, we're going to do two to three weeks in because you cannot get through one sentence of this book without dealing with enormous theological implications. This book is weighty, and the weight of this book starts with the very first verse when it says this. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This, this book, a lot like Genesis, or maybe the beginning of John, starts not with Christ being here on the earth, but it starts with the very beginning of time, with the term long ago, we see here in Hebrews that the good news of the gospel, the story of God's redeeming work in his people does not begin at the birth of Christ, but it begins at the very birth of time. God's plan to redeem his people has been at work since the very beginning. It has been on the heart of God since man was spoken into existence. Many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And since the very beginning of creation, the very beginning of time, God has not been removed or absent, but throughout history, in a variety of ways, he has faithfully spoken to his people, caring for them and guiding them in a variety of circumstances. Again, the author of Hebrews assumes that the readers are well aware of the Old Testament story, specifically the first five books of the Bible known as the Torah. So they know full well that Abraham's family had become the nation of Israel and that Moses led them out of captivity in Egypt and he went to the top of Mount Sinai and he received the Torah and he made a covenant with God. And they know well of the building of the tabernacle where the priests would offer sacrifices and they knew that God's people wandered through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And they knew full well that throughout this journey, God had been faithful to those who came before them. God had been faithful to our fathers. As we progress into Hebrews, I want you to consider the weight of that phrase for a moment. The story of the Old Testament is not a far off story. Part of the, the, the value of Hebrews is that it connects the new and the old. It does not leave the old behind, but the old is intertwined in because the story of the Old Testament is not a far off story of those who are unconnected to us. It is not fiction. It is not the story of spiritual superheroes in a different universe. It is the story of today. It is a story that is in every way a part of our story as God's people. Because it's the means through which God brought you and his church to this very place, this very moment in redemptive history. God's faithfulness to our forefathers was also his faithfulness to us. And God was faithful to speak to our forefathers through the prophets, he says. Yet for those who are his, he communicates differently and many times in different ways through the prophets. He spoke to Moses by a burning bush in Exodus 3. 
He spoke to Elijah by a still small voice in 1 Kings 19. He spoke to Isaiah by a heavenly vision in Isaiah 6. He spoke to Hosea through a family crisis in Hosea 1, verse 2. He spoke to Amos by a basket of fruit, Amos 1, 8. Amos 8, 1, I mean. He spoke to Balaam by a donkey in Numbers 22, 21 through 39. At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. It is a glorious reality to consider God's faithfulness in speaking clearly and in different ways to those who came before us. Yet remember that this letter is being written to those who were far likely more secure in these truths than they were their present reality. They had grown up with these stories of God's faithfulness. As converted Jews, like they had accepted these stories, they knew these stories by heart. These were the bedtime stories they were read at night. But the reality that they currently lived in, in the shadow of the resurrected Christ, this is the connection they were struggling to hold to and to embrace. They were just now soaking in the glorious conclusion to these stories they had been told their whole lives. You see, in this opening verse, the writer, inspired by God, is fully affirming the Old Testament writing as authoritative in every way. But he also wants the church to understand that the Old Testament is a story without an ending, a story awaiting a glorious conclusion. And as he spoke to our fathers through the prophets, we now see that conclusion and that God speaks to us now today through his son. In verse 2, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, him, through whom also he created the world. He draws this distinction between verse 1 and 2. He speaks of long ago, but now, but in these last days. Although this letter was written a couple of thousand years ago, in the eyes of God, it was written in the very same era in which we live and walk and breathe right now, that being the messianic era. The distance between then and now is small when considering the history of creation. The, the people that, to whom this is addressed who first read this letter are people that live in the same era of time that we live in now, which is the last days, the days post-Christ. God is addressing all who live in this final era of humanity, whether 200 or 2022 AD. To those before he spoke to the, through the prophets, but to us he's spoken by his son. God spoke then, through these chosen vessels. But notice the means by which he now speaks to his people have changed. It does not say that God speaks to us now through the apostles, which probably would have been what they expected in that day. That would have kind of made sense. That seemed to be what was taking place. It would have seemed to have been a natural progression to the original readers. But he says, no, he has spoken now through his son. Jesus is not merely a prophet. People made that mistake then. In John 9, 17, we see a man who was blind and Jesus rubs mud on his eyes and he heals him and he's able to see and the Pharisees press him. Who is this man? What has he done? And the man guesses, I, I guess he was a prophet, a prophet, I suppose. People misunderstood who Jesus was in this way. And sadly, some still do not understand this now. Just a couple days ago, um, I was graciously invited, and I got to, uh, I got to see, I got to see in person um, the Afghan family that uh, we're getting to, to love and, and serve for the first time. And it was like this 
It was this glorious moment just watching these kids play in the snow and considering the weight of like where they could be versus where they are now, where they get to be, the safety that they get to have here, what they're not enduring was glorious. But the truth is that that ultimate safety is found only in Jesus Christ and through understanding who he is solely and completely. And this is where Muslims have a misunderstanding today. Because they might, the Muslim community believes some right things about Jesus, but they ultimately believe Jesus is a prophet and they are eternally wrong on this reality about who Jesus is. He is no prophet. He is the very son of God, God himself. And prophets were used by God to progress the story of redemption. But in Jesus, God has spoken the only word we will ever need in the sending of his son, God has given us the gospel. He gives us the Messiah, whom he appointed the heir of all things. The point of Hebrews is that the gospel, the word of God revealed through Christ, is far superior to all that came before. Jesus is not a prophet. He is God on high. The basic structure of Hebrews is specifically written and designed to make this comparison that Jesus is the rock upon which all other idols, all other things break up against. He is the Holy One, the Righteous One. In, verses, in chapters 1 and 2, we're going to see that Jesus is better than the prophets, the angels, and even the Torah itself. In chapters 3 and 4, Jesus is better than Moses in the Promised Land. In chapters 5 and 7, Jesus is better than the priests in Melchizedek. In chapters 6 through 10, Jesus is better than sacrifice and covenant. All of these things that the people knew so well. They, the Hebrews just wants to drive home the point that Jesus is better. He is superior to all of them because all of them were simply vessels meant to point to the supremacy of Christ. Jesus is better than these. He is better than the prophets because he alone can make good on the promises of God, for he is fully God. All things belong to him. He is the heir of all things. Scripture says, through whom also he created the world. By his son, God created the world in the beginning, and it will all belong to the son in the end. This is the promise of redemptive history. For this moment, much of Christ's creation lives in rebellion against him. And make no mistake, God has ordained that and allows that to happen. Yet because of the Son's righteousness, revealed through the cross and the empty tomb, those who oppose him will one day be conquered and all of creation will bow down and acknowledge that they are ruled and owned by Jesus Christ, the creator of all things. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13 describe this moment when it says, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, Christ sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies would be made a footstool for his feet. In other words, Christ took his seat as the righteous ruling heir of all things through his death and resurrection. He is the heir of all things, not only because he made all things, which he did in the beginning, he was there, made all things, but also because through his own death, he purchased us from sin and death. 
This is the gospel. And here in these, by these first verses of Hebrews, God declares that this is the final word, that there will be no other. God has spoken once and for all through his son, Jesus Christ, who is the exact imprint of God himself. Verse 3 tells us of this. This son of God, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. I want to walk through these individual words. It starts with he. I don't want to overly dissect this description of Jesus, but I don't want you to forget for a minute the personhood of Christ. He, your relationship with Jesus, is not the relationship of an insect with a human. It's not the relationship of a peasant to a king. No, because of the gospel, you are called to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He is God, yes. He is our king, yes. And yet... We have been made co-heirs with Christ. And thus he is also a friend and a brother. And he approaches his that way and invites them to himself. Jesus Christ desires you to walk with him. He desires to be known by you in a way that is personal and real. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God. You can gain some flicker of the beauty of God in a variety of ways. Perhaps you gained a flicker of that a few days ago as the sun or as the snow fell from the sky and, and it was beautiful. Um, and then the sun came out and was just like in, in, in full might. And in those things, in the realities of nature, when we gaze in the stars in the sky, when we stand and we see something amazing like the, the Grand Canyon or an epic thunderstorm, when we gaze upon those things, we get this kind of flicker of the glory of God. Or just a couple days ago, I got to sit in the living room and I got to hold one of Rooted's new babies that was, you know, was just come. I've got to do that twice in the past 10 days. And in that moment, you just bask in it. Like there's just a flicker of the glory of God that he spoke this child, this being into existence. Yet, to see the true beauty and glory of God, you must have your heart awakened to gaze upon his son. It's only in Jesus. It's only in the final word of God through the gospel that we see the true beauty and glory of God put on display. This is not general revelation. General revelation is revelation provided for all people. Any person apart from Christ can look upon God's creation and, and feel that some stirring, there's some significant, something amazing, something outside of myself happened here. But it's only through the grace of God, by the power of his word, that being the gospel, that we can see the fullness of that glory in Jesus Christ. This is special revelation provided solely by the mercy of God. The glory of God being made known to man through the gospel. In Jesus Christ, God's glory radiates. And the, we see the exact imprint of his very nature. When you open your Bible and you read of the heart of Christ, you read of the heart of the Father. 
They are one and the same. They are not separate beings. They were not a team put together because they're all different and they all kind of think differently about things and they just needed to balance each other out. No, they are one God, eternally one and perfect of the same heartbeat. They share the very same heart, the very same way of gazing upon the creation of the world. And this is why lately as a church we've sought to make so much of the understanding of the heart of Christ. In the Gospels, we see the heart of Christ put on display. We see God himself and his character walking upon the earth through Jesus. There's serious implications when Jesus describes his very heart as being gentle and lowly. Because to know God is to know the Father. And the heart of Christ is the heart of God in his fullness, Father, Son, and Spirit. In the gospel, we see that God's desire is to be known by his children. It's to be known by us. That's why Hebrews exists. The gospel allows this to happen. We can really know God and who he is. For many churchgoers, if they were honest, Maybe for some of us, if we're honest, they kind of know God like they know Pat Mahomes. Like, they totally recognize Pat Mahomes. They could, they've read the back of his trading card. They know he went to Texas Tech. They know his wife and brother are a little crazy. Like, they, they know a lot of things about Pat Mahomes. Like, they know all these things. Um, but the truth is, they don't, they don't know him probably never even seen him in person. And if they did, it was from an incredible distance. They probably had to use binoculars. They know him the same way they know their favorite author, who they know everything about, or their favorite politician, who they follow relentlessly, but have never sat and heard his or her deepest fears. What they know is a lot of information. And like the fans who show up at the football game to watch Pat, they will come and acknowledge you know, how, how celebratory they are about all that they know. They want to cheer for him. They cheer him on from the stands. You know, they, we, we know a lot about this guy. But this is not how we're invited to know God. No, God calls us his bride. He calls the church the bride of Christ. This is an invitation to something far deeper than to be spectators in a stadium. No amount of information outweighs the depth of feeling that comes when you hold hands with a spouse. The one to whom you know to such a depth that even the slightest facial expression communicates all kinds of things. The rest of the world has no idea that that slight tilt of the eye meant something significant, but you do. That's from, that comes from really knowing one another, from being through things, from being intimate together, from sharing everything, from trusting fully, from being together. This is a different kind of knowing. This is the knowing that the church, the bride of Christ, is invited into. This is the reason that Hebrews was written. Through the gospel, God has invited us to know him in this way. To know him in an intimate, to know him in a personal, to know him in a divine way. We are loved and desired deeply by what this verse says is he who upholds the universe by his power. All things exist and have life in accordance with his will. The word here in verse 3, translated upholds, it means maintaining. 
It's not that he's passively holding something up. It's not that this is just something he's doing on the side, like he's working on some other stuff and earth's just over here in his hand. But it's that he's actively sustaining in any given moment all of creation. The tense of this verb is communicating that Christ is actively involved in this continual work. He is not only active in creation, but he is active in the preservation of creation by his very will. On this passage, John Piper writes this, all things by the word of his power. So today, this person is infinitely powerful. He is speaking all the solar system and all the Milky Way and all the other galaxies into being, as well as the molecules and all the wood and brick of this building. He's holding our flesh and hair and skin and lungs and tissue and fingernails into being right now. If he were to stop thinking you into being, you would cease to be. This is how dependent you are on this person. And yet this person delights in you. And he holds and sustains you for the very purpose of the glory of God being displayed through you. We never face a moment in this life where we are not 100% dependent on God. And as his children, we never face a moment where he is not fully able to give us all that we need. The truth of this dependence is true for all people, whether they acknowledge the one holding them together or not. But for those who are his, who this has been revealed to, who understand this, we are invited into something far deeper. We are invited into a reality where all things are working together for our good to make known the mysteries of his will. The one who healed, the one who drove out demons by his very word is able and willing to do the very same by his same word today in us. Jesus, the creator of all things, people were astounded because he was able to speak to creation and it would do whatever it will. He'd said he, the fig tree just withers up at the word of Jesus. And people were astounded by this because they didn't understand. He's, he held all those things together. All of those things were spoken into existence by his power. And that same Jesus today, through the power of his word, which he has now given you personally to hold in your hand, to carry with you, is able to do the same things by this power to you and through you in accordance with his gracious will. This is the power of Hebrews for us today. As we close this morning, I want to send you with good news by looking at the final words of verse 3. Because this is your hope in all of circumstances. It's the reason for which we're going to gather around the table here in a few moments. I'll read verse 3 from the beginning again. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. After making purification for sins. This term purification is a unique summary of the gospel itself. The good news that God so loved the world that he gave his only son to live a perfect life, to die a brutal death, 
so that there would no longer be condemnation for those who are His, but everlasting joy in Christ Jesus. This is because the purification has taken place. In this word, we see the priestly work of Christ. But the readers of this text originally would have immediately made the connection to the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. We are sinners and are guilty before a righteous king. And when we say that, like that's an easy thing to say. We learn that in Sunday school. We learn that in children's church from a young age. But many of us have never maybe taken the time to know that. Some of us know that too much, but some of us have never really let that sink in. I'm not, I'm not really bad. I mean, I've never done anything that terrible. I don't drink or chew or go with girls who do. Like, I'm not, I'm not that bad of a guy. Like, but the truth is, it's because we don't understand the righteousness of God. Like, understanding the perfect holiness of God is a spectrum that is outside of that which our brains can comprehend or even imagine. It's like trying to um, explain the heat of the sun to one who's only experienced that which we can see here in the world. Like, we have, we have no idea what it is to inch closer to something and to simply melt away at its radiance. We do not understand perfect holiness in such a way in our small treason in the eyes of such a perfectly holy king, has eternal consequence. Because God is perfectly loving, but he is also perfectly just and perfectly holy. And that which is sinful cannot come before him. And the bad news is, and they would have made this connection based on the sacrificial system put in place in the Old Testament, we have no sacrifice worthy. We have nothing, nothing that mirrors the depth of our offense. They didn't have it then either. But every sacrifice they gave, every lamb whose blood was spilled, was pointing to the perfect lamb that was coming. God is perfectly just and perfectly holy, but he is also perfectly loving. Praise be to him. And in Jesus, we see the fullness of being both gentle and lowly, and he, the one who will conquer his enemy with his name tattooed across his thigh. We see the fullness of God in display in Jesus, that he is the perfect just one. That is not separate for who, from who he is, but his, his heart, his very heart itself is that he is gentle and lowly and he desires all to come to him. He desires all to be rescued and to be brought to safety under the wings of his glory. For all who call upon him, all who call upon him as Lord, he is made us pure. He has taken our guilt upon himself, and as the Father forsook the Son on the cross, he made sure that we would never be forsaken. The Son was forsaken by the Father so that we would never be forsaken by the Father. On the cross, Jesus exchanged our guilt for his perfect righteousness. The perfect holiness I described of God belongs to the Son, and the Son lived and faced every sin we could ever face. He faced every trial, every temptation, but he maintained that holiness. And then on the cross, he took that holiness, and he took the guilt that separated us from God, and he swapped them out. And he bore the weight of our sin on the cross, bestowing on us his righteousness. And in this act, he finished the work. It's why I said, it's finished. It's done. There's nothing more that we can do to add on to the righteousness giving us, given us by the Father. Everything that we do in obedience to God now, we're invited, we're no longer bringing a sacrifice to the altar. No, 
we're loving the Father. We're invited now to serve, not to try to earn righteousness, but to serve because we've been given righteousness. And so now I'm invited into relationship. My acts of service are intended to demonstrate my love to the one who loves me and invites me to walk with him. After finishing the work of our redemption, this verse says, Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high like a boss. He finished and he sat down in his rightful seat because Jesus is better than all that seeks to take the place of him. And his gospel is the very life which gives us breath. Tim Keller once once wrote of the gospel, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Wouldn't you pray with me to that end of this morning? Lord, you are glorious. This does not mean I do not have questions about you, because I do. I do not understand the depths of you. I have never flown uh, close enough to the sun to feel fully, uh, to know uh, any, anything remotely close to the depths of who you are. But I do know that which you have revealed in Jesus Christ, the means by which I was saved. Lord, I thank you for the gospel. Lord, I thank you that you would allow us to know enough that we might be yours. As I wrestle um, through the weight of your doctrines, the weight of your truths, there are many mysteries that cause me to sit and think, that cause me to just to, just to question um, the, the what and the why and the how. But when I look at Jesus, I see the radiance of your glory, and I thank you that you have allowed me um, to see such things. Lord, I thank you for each person here in this room who belongs to you, who through your grace, through your word, through your final word, have had their eyes opened to the truth of eternity, to the hope for eternity, Lord. Thank you for your graciousness. Lord, I ask if there are any in this place who do not know you in such a way. Maybe they just know a lot about you Maybe they're, Lord, they're just intrigued by you. Maybe they, they like you from a distance, but they don't know you. They've never, they don't really trust in you. They're just, they're just walking that same road as the rich young ruler. Lord, I ask that you might bring them to their knees with your radiance revealed through the gospel. Lord, help them to see Help them to see every, everything that their soul desires in you. Kick them off their horse. Whatever Damascus they're heading to, Lord, bring them to a place where they can see clearly, where your word can penetrate their heart and, and remove everything that seeks to compete with the spot that was reserved for Jesus and he alone. Lord, when we consider 
the depths of our sin and let us consider such things? Might we grow all the more in our awareness of your graciousness? Might your mercy be expounded each time we realize our shortcoming? Lord, I ask these things in your good and holy name. Amen.